You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Tell me, Thomas, Edwards Davari John, Paul. John Dawes, again Williams in the line, he's over the 25, into John Taylor, what a magnificent move! Thank you for downloading this week's edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast and we have a fronting up special today and I'm joined by Lions, London Welsh and Wales flanker and also top broadcaster John Taylor. John, thank you very much indeed for joining us this week. Good to be here, Jim. Uh, so we've got lots um, lots to, to kind of get through and I was kind of racking my brains earlier as to the best place to start and uh, I felt like I had to, to opt for, for that famous moment in 1971 where, uh, where you slotted the winning conversion at Murrayfield in a momentous game. For those who don't know, um, can you kind of explain to us uh, what, happened, uh, what happened on that day? Yeah, it was a bit of a strange one. Um, Wales against Scotland at Murrayfield. Um, we felt we were the better side all the way through, but it, things kept going wrong all the time. And uh, we ended up about five minutes from time, um, 17, 14 down. And it was still the days in those days of the three-point scrum. Uh, sorry, three-point try. Which is hard to believe now, isn't it? You it know, it's is. hard to get your head around it. A try should be worth three points. And um, as I say, but we, we in some ways couldn't believe we were there because we felt, and you get this feeling in a game, that you're the better side, but we were behind. Um, Gerald Davis scored a try wide out on the right, and um, that took it to 18-17. Uh, sorry, we were 18-14 down. Yep. So it took it to 18-17, and um, it meant that we needed the conversion to win the game. and uh, From the touchline as well. Yeah, yeah and um, the right touchline, and that was the significant thing. Um, and I, being left-footed, kicked from that side that season. Um, a bit more of that in a moment. But uh, <laughs> I got it over, basically. And uh, we won the game 1918, leading that... Uh, 
famous old Welsh commentator, radio commentator, Alan Williams, was saying, and now 1918 won't just be remembered as the end of the First World War. <laughs> and, and the mythical greatest conversion since St Paul. Yeah, well, in fact, uh, that was, that was, it wasn't mythical. It was uh, some, somebody again. I, I only heard that a bit afterwards, but uh, a great line. And uh, But, I mean, the reason I was kicking was we'd had, for the previous couple of seasons, a guy called Keith Jarrett yeah. who went north. He'd been a terrific goal kicker kick from everywhere and amazingly Barry John had never really kicked because when he started at Shanechley uh, Terry Price was there yeah. and Barry just never really kicked but he was you know very talented kicker the slot, slotted drop kicks yeah, in his sleep exactly. he, yeah. he, he did and, um, and he was right footed and there was a famous press conference at the beginning of the season where Clive Rowlands the coach was asked um, Mr Rowlands who's going to take the penalties and typical Clive, very bullish, sort of set the stall out for the way Wales were going to play that season by saying, I don't know who's going to take the, com- uh, the penalties, but I know who's going to take the conversions. And it was really saying, no, we were going to play JPR, obviously a fullback, not bring yeah. in a kicking uh, fullback or anything like that, and that we were going to rely on our attack. So the, the compromise was I curled them a bit um, right to left from the right side, and Barry had all the easy ones as fly halves do in the middle <laughs> and everything out to the left. Well, you say as fly halves do, but certainly wouldn't have been commonplace for flankers to be, to no, be goal kicking. No. How did that come about anyway is with you kind of goal kicking? Because I'd basically been a fly half centre mm. uh, at school and um, had moved. I went to Loughborough and I was um, in the same Loughborough team as Gerald Davis. And Gerald Davis played in the centre in those days. And we were a, a centre partnership for a short time. And I realised that this guy was so quick that if I had any pretensions to doing anything, I'd better move. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't realise was the, the rest of the world found him that quick. Yeah. And they did. I mean, he was so electric off, uh, you know, first 40 metres, nobody could touch him. I mean, still now on, uh, on YouTube footage and you know, yep. where you see the old footage back, the acceleration is still frightening now to watch. It must have been terrifying to play against. Well, he was absolutely wonderful. I mean, he, he was also one of the very few people who had a real sidestep in that he'd start running in one direction and he'd step sideways and still be going in the same direction when he stepped. Um, and he'd be the other side of the player. Whereas people more like um, Phil Bennett were more jinkers. Yeah. They'd come and they'd go back the other way. Um, but uh, Gerald really, without sort of breaking stride, would take a sidestep and carry on going in the same direction. I mean, he was amazing. And uh, to, to bring it back to, to Murrayfield, it had been an eventful day for you anyway, hadn't it, prior to, prior to that moment, uh, in terms of, um, I believe I'm right in saying you, you had missed a conversion prior in the game. Yep. And had you got on the, did you get on the score sheet as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I had I, a good try just before yeah. uh, half-time. Um, uh, one of those where moved it out and JPR dummied to go out and then fed back inside to me and gave me a run down the middle, which was lovely. I mean, that was one of the ploys that we that we used and it worked perfectly um, at that time. But um, as I say, the, the, the real story of the game was that uh, we kept absolutely messing things up. And just as it looked we'd taken control, Barry actually and... Gareth scored tries sort of shortly after half-time. Um, it looks as if we got control, and then we gave a bad one away. And they had Peter Brown kicking, mm. 
who was the ugliest kicker in the world. I mean, he, he, he never hit the ball right. And I always remember Bill McLaren's sort of typical commentary on it was, uh, oh, it's another scruffy one. It's gone over. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's astonishing, really. You mentioned Clive Rowland there in the, in the press conference. But the emphasis that was placed on attacking rugby, even when tries were only worth three points, mm-hmm. You know, whereas today you have, or certainly in years prior to the last couple, you've had sides set up in order to capitalise on on penalties because yeah. they're because they're worth you know because they're worth three. Whereas actually in those days it was it was only worth only worth three points for a try. It's astonishing, really. Yeah, and I mean scores generally were were very much lower um, because of that. And you certainly, I mean, you had two tries converted now, 14 points, mm-hmm. boom, suddenly it looks a very big gap. Uh, it was a different thing when it was only 10. It was, and of course that year went on to, to win the Grand Slam, which wouldn't become unusual for the, for the 70s. <laughs> but again, that, you know, that day must be, was it, would it be your, um, your favourite memory in a whale shirt? Um, not quite. Okay. Uh, obviously, huge. Every dog has his day, and that way it was certainly mine. That was my day. But in fact, the final game, winning that Grand Slam, uh, we beat France in France, and they were our real big, big rivals at that time. They were certainly the you know the next strongest side. Um, they'd won a Grand Slam, I think, their first ever in '68, and they were a terrific side. And they set off at such a pace um, in 71. We were at the old Stade Cologne. Mm. And um, totally amazing. I mean, you know, for the first 15 minutes, I thought we were going to be wiped off the park. And uh, we hung in there, defended incredibly. Barry John even made a tackle, made a mess of it, (laughs) broke his nose, and I had to help out. But uh, he, he still remembers that. But, but it was that that was an incredible day. We, um, we weren't going to be denied whatever. And um, it was a great game. It wasn't you know, nearly as fluent and full of tries as the England game mm. had been, or even the Scottish game had been. But um, it, was, it was great. Yeah, we, yeah, with so much on the line. I think the, the fascinating thing there, as you mentioned, Stad, um, Stad Cologne, but the, the Murrayfield game would have been in front of what, 100, over 100,000 people mm. in, in those days, which is, again, hard to get your head around as a modern rugby fan. It is. It's, um, that was a truly amazing as well. I mean, I think I played um, three games in Murrayfield where the crowd was over 100,000. And 73, two years later, it got so big, apparently the Scottish secretary of the AA, Scottish Rugby Union bragged about it, and it was something like 107,000. And the health and safety people went, what? And, and, and closed it down. But for us, uh, for Wales, it was fantastic because all Max Boyce's songs about going to Scotland and the, the bottle that once held bitter ale, and the, <laughs> they, they were based on, on the fact that because yeah. you, it was that bank opposite the stand where the changing rooms now are um, was a bank that nobody knew how many people could get on it. And they, you, it was the only ground for internationals where you could pay at the turnstile and go in. So all the Welsh guys went to Scotland. They'd take a week off from the yeah. steelworks and the mines and everything else because they knew they'd be able to get in. And Mervyn Davis and I always used to go for a walk in Cardiff uh, or in Murrayfield before the game, It'd just get the feel of it. And it was like walking down St Mary Street in Cardiff. 
Um, it was fantastic. On a morning down Princes Street, more Welsh people than Scottish people because really tens of thousands would go to Scotland because they knew yeah. they could get in and see the game. It's a ter- I mean, it's still a terrific away day in Murrayfield. I, mm. I went two years ago um, in what wasn't an amazing game, but it was my first time in Edinburgh and I was just astonished. I barely spoke to a, to a Scot all weekend because it was just it was a sea of red and I think it's it remains a a firm fan favourite as a, um, as a place to go yeah I think once the tradition had been set people carried on going because they had a great time and um, it was something that started I mean I always remember uh, 75 I was actually up there I'd had a bad injury and I was I was working actually for the BBC uh, with Bill McLaren and there were people actually knocking on doors down the Kostofin Road to Murrayfield because they'd only just discovered it was all ticket. And they were, it was wonderful because people were inviting them in and they watched it on the telly. Yeah, that's <laughs> incredible. And, of course, that year um, went on to, to play for the Lions as well mm-hmm. in um, a tour where achieved what seems like the impossible these days in beating <laughs> New Zealand on, on New Zealand um, tour. But... What an incredible team that was. Are you able to kind of pinpoint what made that team so successful? I think hugely talented back division in particular. And the fact that Wales had been out there two years previously and we'd actually, we hadn't won a Grand Slam in 69, we'd, but we'd had a triple crown and drew with France. So we'd won the championship mm-hmm. and we started to think we were quite good. It was Merv and... Um, JPR's first season and they'd really sort of been two pretty important pieces of the jigsaw in the Welsh team and uh, we started to think we were going to New Zealand put us right back in our boxes and and there was a huge determination from the Welsh contingent which of course was pretty big Mm. um, that if we were really going to be able to claim any sort of um, greatness is too big a word, but um, you know any historic uh, significance to the side that we'd put together, we had to prove ourselves down there yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere. And that was very, very much it. And we'd learned an awful lot um, in 69. So we went down with the Welsh captain and uh, Carwin James, of course, the, the Welsh coat, absolutely, totally on board with what John Dawes um, was trying to do mm. as captain and what he'd done at London Welsh play this very very attacking brand of rugby and I, I'll never forget uh, you know when we'd been there about six seven weeks um, Willie John and I were actually rooming together and Willie smoked a pipe probably still <laughs> does um, so just going to bed and he'd say he'd say John do you mind if I have a pipe you know and and he started puffing on his pipe, and he suddenly said, I think we can do these buggers. And he was fantastic from that. You know, he really got the bit between his teeth too. And, you know, if you added in the, the talent that um, sort of made the complete team, people like Mike Gibson from mm. Ireland, Willie John, of course, himself, um, Onto the the Welsh core, as it were, um, Gordon Brune from Troon, Scotland, and uh, it was a very talented side. I'd, I'd have to say we came second best in the forwards over the duration of the series, but we were 
close enough to them to actually get enough ball for that great set of backs with um, you know Dawes and Gibson in the centre, Gerald Davis and David Duckham on the wings, Barry John and uh, Gareth Edwards. It was a pretty imposing thing with JPR at the back trying to get in on the action whenever he could. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the um, you mentioned Carwin James, of course. But, I mean, there's so many big leadership figures that you've already mentioned. Carwin mm. James and, um, and the, you know, plenty of that back division, John Dawes and Willie John. Do you think the leadership was, a, was an important part of that, of that success as well? Without any question. Um, certainly John Dawes's belief in playing the sort of game that we could play and Carwin and he sort of sticking to that was hugely important. I mean, because... Second test, we lost, and I think the whole of New Zealand thought, oh, well, the first test was just a blip. Yeah. But Carwin, I always remember saying that uh, he saw more in the second test to be optimistic about than pessimistic about. And, of course, we came out in the third test and had a glorious first half where we, we took him to pieces, really, and then sort of hung on in there and drew in the, in the last test for that 2-1 victory. And... Um Again, kind of moving on a couple of years, a couple of years later, another big moment within your career, being selected to to play for uh, the Lions tour to South Africa and choosing not to not to go. Well, that, that's not quite true. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what what actually happened was I went in the '68 tour yeah. uh, to South Africa and hated it so much and realised that. All the the rugby sort of nonsense about we're building bridges, we're not supporting apartheid, that that was the sort of mantra at the time, was a load of rubbish. And I came back and it was the 69-70 tour um, when South Africa came over here that I said I wouldn't play. Mm. And when we got, by the time we got to 74... Um, I, I'd spent a, a little time in the in the wilderness <laughs> in 1970, mm. um, despite assurances that they'd treat it just as a, a matter of personal conscience. Um, I was actually left out for three matches, but fortunately Wales had a very bad year, <laughs> and I, I was called back before yeah. the end of the season. But they knew um, what used to happen in those days. The protocol was you were sent uh, an invitation early in the season to see whether you were prepared to tour. And they knew what my answer was going to be, but in fact I I just capped in Wales against Japan and they had to send me an invite and they they knew that I was going to say no. So that was the reality. So it never got as far as being picked. But I mean, uh, again, must be such a... Such a hard thing now because you see in the you see in the press people talking about Gatland's law and things like that potentially affecting your your chance to to play for Wales when it's an issue as big as that you know it's still a a huge um, a huge dilemma or had you made your mind up so vehemently in '68 that oh yeah no chance I mean I had I was a school teacher in London um, when I went on the '68 tour a huge comprehensive very mixed race kids um, and I had misgivings about going even then but um, I was 22, 23 um, wanted to be a lion obviously, Mm. mad keen to be a lion and allowed myself to therefore be persuaded in my head that no I wasn't supporting apartheid 
And really, the moment I got there, I realised that we were. I mean, I'll never forget um, you know, some of the things that we saw. Um, just nothing shocking, except it was all shocking. Yeah. Because of the way that uh, the whole place ran. And you, it was hard to believe, it really was. And um, I came back and vowed I... I think I actually said at the time, uh, next time I go back to South Africa will be when Nelson Mandela says it's okay. And he did, eventually. You mentioned, I mean, because the the other strange thing is that rugby rugby teams continued to tour South Africa while cricket and the the IOC had kind of turned their back on them um, by this point. Why do you think rugby was, was different? Well, it was really rugby and cricket. Okay. Um, cricket was was forced to stop just before rugby, but it was the two old sort of empire Commonwealth sports, yeah. and that's I, that was one of the things I also felt very very uncomfortable about uh, because it was very obvious to me that for the white South African, cricket and rugby were the two biggest things in the world, yeah. and providing they had their cricket and their rugby. Um, they would quite happily live with isolation in other sports. And that was one of the things that sort of shocked me about the establishment reaction over here. I mean, I was told quite vehemently and very categorically by a couple of grandees from the RFU from England that I should never be allowed to play again in international rugby. I mean, almost saying... You know, how dare you, you whippersnapper, you're a player, you you do what we say. And they were very, very supportive and would do anything. And Danny Craven, who was then, you know, the the king of South African rugby in terms of administration, would come over every year and come up with the the strangest sort of propaganda exercise to uh, make sure that, and all they were interested in, um, it was keeping South Africa in international rugby. And eventually it became impossible. But, I mean, England, unbelievably, even after it had been deemed sort of impossible for the Springboks to tour over here again, they still went. 1984, and you'd already had the um, flower-bombing tour of the Springboks in New Zealand and it was just amazing that they were quite prepared to actually close their eyes to everything and 1984 actually go and carry out a tour. In fact, I went on that as a journalist. Um, it was quite a, a good tale. My editor, Stuart Stephen, at the Mail on Sunday, said, I asked to see him, and he said, you've, you've come in to tell me you're not going. You are going, but we're not taking any of their money because they were actually paying for the journalists to go. Uh, they were just falling over backwards. And he said, and I will guarantee you um, two big articles while the tour's on where you can say what's changed or what's not changed. Complete editorial and, freedom to do so. Yeah, and I mean, when, when you think sort of where the Mail on Sunday sits on the political spectrum, well, yeah, it was, it was, and, and, it, and he was as good as his word, he really was. And uh, I... You know, wrote pretty damning pieces because, again, the window dressing that they they were so naive in their window dressing and trying to persuade everybody, and of course then eventually um, the, the cut off point came, 
And the wonderful thing, obviously, from my point of view, was that um, isolation soon actually made them change. Yeah. Kind of sport and politics conundrum is obviously something that has replayed over uh, over various sports in various different countries throughout history. Again, something that's kind of reared its head in the past week with fines for the, the football associations of the home nations. Do you still think it plays as big a role, the the kind of the, the statement within sport on the on the political spectrum as it once did? I think it does. Um, I mean, it depends on the sports, how they use it to an extent. But as I said, the really incredible thing with South Africa was you just knew if you were there, as long as they had their cricket and their rugby, mm. they really didn't give a damn. And therefore, it was very obvious that it was going to be a potent tool. And obviously, it still can be. I mean, it'll be very interesting interesting to see how um, this plays out now with the doping. And if Russia does get isolated, whether it brings them back into line. Because sport has got this sort of universal appeal. And no country appears uh, or is content, really, to live in a vacuum and just pursue their sport internally. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Fast forward then, kind of uh, 20 years, you've already mentioned Nelson Mandela. Go to 1995 and you're out there in your, your role as, um, as lead commentator with ITV. If you can put that moment into words when, when South Africa, uh, a united South Africa, lifted the, um, the William Webb Ellis Trophy, explain kind of what, what that was like experiencing it firsthand. The whole day was just incredible because I was lucky enough to actually do the build-up to the game as well as commentating. They sort of said, you know, do you feel up to it? Because they had the great Trevor MacDonald mm. uh, was my co-presenter of the um, the build-up. And we, well, I always remember we, we had this script that told us what was going to happen in the build-up. And one of the things was, of course, the Boeing 747 mm. coming over, made very famous in the film Invictus yeah. in the end. And in the film, they actually tried to make it seem as if they were worried it might be a terrorist threat. I mean, that was a nonsense. Yeah. That was just Clint Eastwood indulging himself <laughs> because we, we, had, we had it on our script. We knew it was coming over. Yeah. But what we didn't know was uh, it was going to come over as low as it did. And it was amazing because it came over so low that a, a British Airways pilot told me later, if you'd done that over London, you'd have been in jail for 20 years. But um, it came over so low that Trevor and I, we ducked under our desk. It was, it was frightening. It really was. But he, being the wonderful pro, just put his finger to his lips, said, shh, stood up and just carried on talking. It was absolutely brilliant. But... Um, that, you know, and then followed, obviously, by Mandela coming out in Pinar's number yeah. six jersey. Uh, then the sort of incredible match uh, where everybody, I think, expected Jonah Lomu to, to flatten. Mm. And uh, it didn't, never happened. And obviously on into extra time and uh, the absolute classic outcome. And... It was, it was sort of scary around Ellis Park, you know, is right in the middle of what's now a pretty rough area yeah. and then was beginning to get rougher. 
And yet it was as if the nation sort of stopped, put all its troubles behind it, and celebrated. And it was just amazing. I remember sort of standing outside the stadium afterwards and just this incredible noise going on everywhere and nobody in any way feeling intimidated or scared or anything else. Even though, as I say, it it wasn't an area even then where you'd sort of, not like Durban where you'd have Braithlaces and and all of that sort of thing. Um, it was it was a place you sort of gone out to um, Santon, where the hotels were, and and that's really where things uh, happened, because the inner city had become almost a sort of no go area, but not for that night. It was just yeah. just wonderful. A moment that really kind of oh, transcended never sport. Forget. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or it happened because of sport. Yeah, and coming back to what we were talking about, I mean that is the power that sport actually has. Would that again? Would that be your favourite moment covering rugby world cups? Yes, yeah, that would. It would. Uh, I mean, it was. It was a weird competition in some ways, um, but that actual final was, yeah, the most incredible moment. I suppose on a on a on a lighter note to that, um, last year's rugby world cup, you had a different role. Um, so the stadium <laughs> yes. announcement, uh, stadium announcer at Twickenham. Was it easy to remain professional during the game where Wales defied the odds and beat and beat England in their own backyard? It was very easy, to be honest, because, <laughs> well, I, you know, all the time uh, I was commentating, I used to get uh, some criticism from Wales uh, because, again, just very conscious that you had to almost sort of lean over backwards to yeah. make sure you were neutral. Um, and in that sort of situation, um, I would... To make sure I was very neutral in commentary. I'd say people in some people in Wales. I'd always get a few emails or letters or whatever saying you. I was biased against Wales. Yeah. Um, so it, it it was pretty easy to do that in that sort of way. But um, I had some lovely reactions. I've got a great mate in Australia, and I got an email from him just after the end of the game and said, "How the hell we didn't hear." Come on, <laughs> boy, you beauties! Straight after the final whistle, I shall never know. But uh, now, in fact, that was a, that was a, a fun job because um, that different idea of how to present a rugby match. Yeah. Funnily enough, came out of the Olympics, and I'd done wrestling at the Olympics, and that's how I got the job. Um, the the company that uh, Debbie Jevons hired to um, do the presentation at Rugby World Cup had done this. Uh, stuff at the Olympics and they say well come on this is your sport you've got to come and do it so you'd done wrestling in the venue rather than as a broadcaster yeah I, I but that had come because I'd done wrestling as a broadcaster yeah. at the Commonwealth Games and that was only because uh, uh, I was going out to do the rugby seven yeah. <laughs> which doesn't last very long and they said oh, we need you to do something else John um, <laughs> and I said yeah and they said Wrestling. We've got nobody who knows anything about wrestling. And I had, in fact, uh, commentated for... I did four Olympics as a gymnastics commentator. And um, so I'd gained this sort of reputation for learning other sports. And I learned wrestling, really, from the bottom as I'd learned gymnastics from the bottom. It's one of my favourite things about the Olympics, actually, is when you have these voices that you recognise from, your, you know, when Jonathan Agnew <laughs> turns up on, uh, you know, dressage. turns up on dressage <laughs> and Eddie Butler's doing archery and stuff. Yeah. It's always something that, um, that, uh, that I really enjoy. 
I'm going to bring it into the to the modern day now, um, and we do a a lot of whinging and moaning on this on this podcast. And it's good to have someone who knows who knows a lot more about rugby than me um, <laughs> on this occasion. So, one of the big things we talk about is that the, the kind of the Welsh brand of rugby, and you played in one of the most exciting teams that really captured the world's imagination rather than just the uh, the nation's imagination. What do you make of the, the kind of the current Welsh side, which has come in for a lot of stick recently? Well, I think it's at the end of a particular cycle. Um, I mean, I think Warren Gatland did really well um, in identifying that he had this very, very unusual mix for a Welsh team. I mean, to have Jamie Roberts, Jonathan Davies, George North, Cuthbert's all in a back division, mm. they'd have all been in the second row in my day and bigger than any of them. But, um, I mean, he utilised those guys and created Warren Ball. And it, but nothing works in perpetuity. And, I mean, it was very interesting. Jamie Roberts, when he started playing was actually a very good counter-attacking fullback, and he really was. And I think it's more a question of of moving on, and it is important that they they change the emphasis because the analysis that now goes into everything is huge, and um, nobody more than Sean Edwards. I mean, he's the biggest analyst I have ever, ever met. He even got our games from the 70s after he took the job and broke those down. I always remember him coming on the phone and saying to me, uh, did you realise when your defence was 90... You're talking about another world, Sean. (laughs) We were lucky if we saw a 16mm film highlight package six months after the end of the season. And he, oh, no, no, you must have had... No, we didn't. But, I mean, I do think the, the Welsh, coming back to exactly what we're talking about... Um, the Welsh style of play has now been sussed by all the other guys. So it has to change. Um, where we've been lucky and again are going to struggle is not just those backs and the way they're playing. Uh, with Gethin Jenkins and Adam Jones at the top of their games in the front row, we had the first really strong Welsh front row since the Pontypool front row. And Again, we don't normally breed very big guys. And one of the features of the way that Welsh rugby evolved in my time was we would generally have been reckoned to be a smallish side. And John Dawes' absolute commitment was uh, once we get the ball, they don't have it back till we scored. And that was, you know, that was very... I mean, that actually came out of when he first came to London Welsh because London Welsh had a very skillful team full of school teachers and medical students, but was very small. And he looked at it and thought, right, you know, once we get the ball, possession is so precious, we've got to use it. And it was great to be able to break away from that. And when you got sort of big guys like Mike Roberts and um, Mervyn, you know, change, Mervyn Davis changed things enormously. But the same now, Warren Gatland came through, looked at it analytically, created a very, very successful brand, but it never lasts for more than two or three years. And he got probably three or four years out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, he did, he did very well, but it has got to be reinvented now. 
Do you think that that Gatland and Edwards and the current crop of coaches are able to do that with the players that they've got at their disposal? I think it's very, very difficult. I also think coaches have a a natural lifespan and sometimes you've got to shake it up. There's Mm. a lot of been together and have done very well for, for a very long time. But I get a feeling they're still a bit too conservative and I think they need some new blood in there to really absolutely shake it up um, and you know there's been rumours even today that Gatlin won't stick around he's saying absolutely not I am going to stick around till 2019 um, wouldn't surprise me if that changes it really wouldn't no likewise actually and I'm going to come on to the Lions next because it's something that I've been quite critical of on this podcast is I don't think Warren Gatlin should have been allowed to to take another 18-month sabbatical to go and, and lead his country. Would you agree with that? Or? I was going to come on to exactly that. I mean, you know, to get the jobs in perspective, I mean, it's a great honour and all this for the Lions, but he's had one spell mm. off. Um, I don't think it's as if Rob Howley is a natural replacement for Gatland, and therefore I do think that he should, if he's serious about staying on until 2019, be concentrating all his efforts on um, Wales at the mm-hmm. moment because they do need a major change of direction. They need a rebuild. And you can't do that if you're not there. And I really, in a way, find it very surprising. I do. And I think um, the other thing is, if you cast your mind back to the Graham Henry Lions tour, it created a lot of friction off the back of not winning the tour and not selecting some of the Welsh players. It became very difficult for him to manage afterwards. And we know what an amazing coach he is. I wonder whether Gatlin got a little bit lucky with the series win in Australia and picking so many Welsh players, whether there could be repercussions off the off the back of the New Zealand tour as well. Well, he certainly got lucky. Um, he got very lucky. How the hell they actually won that first test, I shall never, ever yeah. know. I couldn't, I mean, it was two fluffed kicks. And mm-hmm. I, I don't mean just miss, absolutely fluffed. And then they didn't turn up in the second test at all. So they got very lucky to win that series in Australia. If, if you look at winning Lions tours, I think that was probably the luckiest one. But I mean, what, what Gatlin did do there it was, of course, got this immense kudos for being very much his own man, picking Jamie Roberts in front of Brian O'Driscoll, and showing that he had this strength of selection. And I think that also is hugely important because I think some of England's woes with uh, Lancaster and Martin Johnson before them, well, they were both very bad selectors. And as an international team, as a national team selector, sorry, as a national team coach, your biggest job is selection. Of course. Without any question at all. You haven't got all that time with the players. You've got to rely on club coaches to do that job. You have got to be a very strong selector. You've got to be radical. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that um, there'll be repercussions onto Gatland within the Welsh camp um, if he doesn't pick uh, Welshmen because Six Nations Championships can change everything. But if we were betting now, you would have to say that England are favourites. England have got a very, very good group of players together. 
And if they've got a very good group of players together, as they have, they are likely to produce the biggest contingent and the core of that Lions team down there. Now, he's got to forget his Welsh allegiances completely and utilise that as best he can. I don't think he'll think twice about, you know, bearing in mind that the overwhelming um, criticism that he came on for not picking O'Driscoll, I don't think he'll think twice no. about selecting an Englishman over a, over a Welshman, and nor should he really, because no, that's, that's what he's paid for. So, and, and I don't really see there being repercussions back in Wales because of that, because I think everybody knows, you know, suddenly we're getting into a situation where um, Jamie Roberts is not the absolute automatic number 13 that you pick without even mm. looking at the paper. Um, it, it, you know, I think the Six Nations will be very interesting because we'll see whether Wales can change it all. My One of my worries is Rob Howley, I think, does it as a sort of caretaker role. Mm. Instead, he's got to strike out on his own. I, I, I Absolutely, and this is something that comes up repeatedly is, you know, he's won three out of four autumn internationals, but that very much papers over the cracks for me. I think the performances were really, really poor and how far off the pace we were against Australia. I think Rob Halley's got an awful lot to do to convince the the Welsh public that he is the right man for the job now, yet alone post-Gatland. And rightly so. Um, I mean, I'm certainly not sure. Like him as a guy, mm. but there's not room for sentiment there. And he's got to show a lot more strength. I don't like the way that, I mean, uh, he sort of made excuses after the Australia one. That was shocking. I was there and I couldn't believe I what I saw. Yeah, it was the one of the, the worst performances under the Gatland era. It was the worst atmosphere I've experienced in Cardiff in a long time. Um, and I think that's the time to come out and show your strength of character and say we simply weren't good enough today. We, Whether or not it's against Australia or... Namibia, we can't turn up and play like that against anyone, no. and it won't be it won't be the case in future weeks. To kind of make the excuses and say, "Oh, we're learning," you know, we've lost to Australia so many times, and as a as a punter, you get fed up of paying sixty quid a ticket to to watch us. You know, the near misses is one thing, an abject performance like that just really felt like a he did himself no favours with that press conference. No, I I, I thought uh, it, the worry to me was. It, is indicative of a sort of, say, almost um, uh, I'm an understudy. I don't want to put myself out on a limb and act as if I am the person who's absolutely in charge. It's a holding role sort of thing. And then, of course, I mean, let's not forget, I mean, the the Japan performance was also pretty shocking. And and you mentioned um, selection as, as being, you know, the absolute... Um, probably the the most important part of being an international head coach. Well, part of that is is your selection during the game as well, and the amount of time it took him to bring Sam Davis on, who is the informed player in mm-hmm. in Welsh rugby. Whether or not he's he's inexperienced or not, I think it was by the by. And likewise, Keelan Giles. When you're up in that game, if, you, if he's good enough to be in the matchday squad, he's good enough to be on the pitch. And you've seen what he's done in recent weeks. The guy is terrifying, and you know a second string. Japan side with tiring legs would not have wanted to see either of those players come on the pitch. No, he's, he is. He's a very exciting young player and, and you've got to blood these guys and bring them in. And again, as you say, he, he didn't really do it. I mean, one of the things I love about Eddie Jones was one, he's proved himself already to be a really good selector, 
But the other thing is if he gets it wrong, he immediately does something about it. I mean, when he um, played uh, Tamana Harrison too mm-hmm. early, um, so hey, this isn't working. Pull him off at half-time, unheard of. And, and likewise, Luther Burrell as well. I think it's yeah. that kind of... Yeah. It's easy to sit here and praise James at the moment with the, the record the way it is, but that, that that isn't a fluke. No, but it's that sort of incisiveness that I think Welsh rugby, and that's what we're really sort of trying to gain from it. And I worry that Rob hasn't got that sort of incisiveness or the confidence to implement it. Um, I'm just going to going to finish then on because it's, it's great to hear kind of. Uh, hear your your opinions and something else which we talk about regularly on this is kind of punditry and analysis in the in the, in the modern era, and it's something which you know I've been very critical of because I feel like there is a level of of chumminess and particularly on on BBC Wales, it almost feels like the players the ex players are too close to the current setup in order to have a um, a kind of true honest opinion. On TV, and that to me feels like it's a bit of a slap in the face to the to the rugby going public. As someone who's been both an ex pro and uh, sorry, is an ex pro and has also been a broadcaster for a number of years, how important is it to to have that level of honesty within within punditry? Well, I think if you lose it, um, you lose your audience. <laughs> I mean, it's, from that point of view, you really do because um, uh, you know the Welsh people aren't daft, and there is. You know, on the one hand, from the Welsh public, a feeling they they almost want uh, the the pundits and the commentators to be supportive. Mm. They also know what they've seen, and and I mean, I also take it one stage further. I think that uh, you know pundits can actually help and do a job in terms of alerting everybody to the problems instead of papering over the cracks as we've talked about and if everybody is a bit chummy and say well you know we got the win and yeah. uh, it wasn't so bad after all and let's face it um, you know we, we always start slow in the autumn internationals mm-hmm. you wait till we get to I don't think you can keep ducking out that. I, I've always liked um, somebody prepared to actually say what they think and it adds a bit of spice, and particularly as, as somebody who uh, enjoyed enormously sort of leading the commentary team, um, it gives you something to bounce back off. And I'd, I'd like that aspect of it too. I think it makes for a for a much better broadcast. I mean, I'm not a fan of the sort of um, simmering. Um, antagonism that there always appeared to be between Brian Moore and Eddie Butler. Yep. Um, half people seem to like it, half people don't like it at all. I didn't like the dynamic of that and the way it worked. But um, at least Brian certainly always would speak his mind yeah. and you know exactly where he was coming from. And I think that that, from a pundit, is has a real role to play, as I say, in, in a wider vision of the game as well as the actual broadcast and yeah I mean I 100% agree with that and I just think that the reason why you have ex-players there as as pundits is because I couldn't tell you what it's like to be in a Welsh dressing room before a big game Martin Williams can but he's paid there to to have that insight he's not paid there to just stick up for the current crop who may who may be his mate so I think that the difficult part of that is you have to front up and say 
you know, as, as difficult as it's going to be, my job is to be objective about it and to, um, you know, and to, and to get my opinion across. Yeah, I think uh, one of the problems is producers um, in, in radio and television now, there is a feeling that if you've won 50 caps, mm. you're going to get a couple of years of living on your name then and uh, have a bit of a media career. If you, uh, the only advice I could put out is if you want it to last a bit longer, you've got to be a lot more forthright, you've got to learn your trade and you've got to do it properly because it doesn't go on for long otherwise. There's always someone coming up who's going to overtake you and if you're bland, then you'll very soon get overtaken. John, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, thanks very much for joining us on the Attacking Scrum. And uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to hear from you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This is John Taylor. Kicking from, for him, the correct touchline. It's high enough. What a conversion. Podcast Network.